we have quoted Paul's statement to the effect that God hath shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy on all, Romans 11.32, and that the sentence of death was passed within us, that we should not trust in ourselves, but only in God, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 9. The creature cannot adequately appreciate God's mercy until he has been rescued from a state of misery. After the lame beggar had been healed by Peter and John at the door of the temple, he appreciated his health as never before and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. And after being delivered from the power and guilt of sin, we appreciate God's grace as we never could have otherwise. We read that even our Lord Jesus Christ in his human nature was made perfect through sufferings, although he was, of course, totally separate from all sin. 10. Calvinism offers a more satisfactory solution of the problem of evil than does any other system. The real difficulty which we face here is to explain why a God of infinite holiness, power, and wisdom would have brought into existence a creation in which moral evil was to prevail so extensively, and especially to explain why it should have been permitted to issue in the everlasting misery of so many of his creatures. This difficulty, however, bears not only against Calvinism, but against theism in general, and while other systems are found to be wholly inadequate in their explanation of sin, Calvinism can give a fairly adequate explanation in that it recognizes that God is ultimately responsible since he could have prevented it, and Calvinism further asserts that God has a definite purpose in the permission of every individual sin, having ordained it for his own glory. As Hamilton says, if we are to accept theism at all, the only respectable kind is Calvinism. Calvinism teaches that God not only knew what he was doing when he created man, but that he had a purpose even in permitting sin. In what better explanation than this can be advanced by any one else who believes that God is the creator and ruler of this universe? In regard to the first fall of man, we assert that the proximate cause was the instigation of the devil and the impulse of his own heart, and when we have established this, we have removed all blame from God. Paul tells us that God dwelleth in the light which no man can approach unto. Our mental vision can no more comprehend his deep mysteries than our unaided physical eyes can endure the light of the sun. When the apostle contemplated these things, he broke forth, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways past tracing out! And since our human intellects cannot soar to such stupendous heights, it is ours to adore with reverence, fear, and trembling, but not to explain that mystery which is too high and too deep for even the angels themselves to penetrate. Let us remember also that along with this sin, God has provided a redemption graciously wrought out by himself, and no doubt it is due to our limitations that we do not see this to be the all-sufficient explanation. The decree of redemption is as old as the decree of apostasy, and he who ordained sin has also ordained a way of escape from it. Since the scriptures tell us that God is perfectly righteous, and since in all of his acts upon which we are capable of passing judgment, we find that he is perfectly righteous, we trust him in those realms which have not yet been revealed to us, believing that he has solutions for those problems 
which we are not able to solve. We can rest assured that the judge of all the earth will do right, and as his plan is more fully revealed to us, we learn to thank him for that which is past and to trust him for that which is future. It avails nothing, of course, to say that God foresaw the evil, but did not include it in his plan. For if he foresaw it, and in spite of it brought the world into existence, the evil acts were certainly a part of the plan, although an understandable part. To deny this foresight makes God blind, and he would then be conceived of as working something like the schoolboy who mixes chemicals in the laboratory, not knowing what may happen. In fact, we could not even respect the God who worked in that manner. And furthermore, that view still leaves the ultimate responsibility for sin resting upon God, for at least he could have refrained from creating. That the sinful acts of men have their place and a necessary place in the plan is plainly seen in the course of history. For instance, the assassination of President McKinley was a sinful act, yet upon the act depended the role which Theodore Roosevelt was to play as President of the United States, and if that one link in the chain of events had been otherwise, the entire course of history from that time to the end of the world would have been radically different. The same is true in the case of Lincoln. If God intended that the world should reach the state in which we find ourselves today, those events were indispensable. A moment's consideration will convince us that all of even the apparently insignificant events have their exact place, and that they start rapidly growing influences which soon extend to the ends of the earth, and that if one of them had been omitted, say fifty years ago, the world today would have been far different. A further important proof that Paul taught the doctrine which Calvinists have understood him to teach is found in the objections which he put in the mouths of his opponents that it represented God as unrighteous. Is there unrighteousness with God? Romans 9.14 In that it destroyed man's responsibility. Thou wilt then say unto me, Why doth he still find fault? For who understandeth his will? Romans 9.19 These are the very objections which today, on first thought, spring into man's minds in opposition to the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. But they have not even the least plausibility when directed against the Arminian doctrine. A doctrine which does not afford the least grounds of these objections cannot have been the one that the Apostle taught. Chapter 18, page 254 That it discourages all motives to exertion. 1. The means as well as the ends are foreordained. 2. Practical results. The objection that the doctrine of predestination discourages all motives of exertion is based on the fallacy that the ends are determined without reference to the means. It is not merely a few isolated events here and there that have been foreordained, but the whole chain of events with all of their interrelations and connections. All of the parts form a unit in the divine plan. If the means should fail, so would the ends. If God has purposed that a man shall reap, he has also purposed that he shall sow. If God has ordained a man to be saved, he has also ordained that he shall hear the gospel and that he shall believe and repent. As well might the farmer refuse to till the soil according to the laws disclosed by the light of nature and experience, 
until he had first learned what was the secret purpose of God to be executed in his providence in regard to the fruitfulness of the coming season, as for anyone to refuse to work in the moral and spiritual realms because he does not know what fruitage God may bring from his labor. We find, however, that the fruitage is commonly bestowed where the preliminary work has been faithfully performed. If we engage in the Lord's service and make diligent use of the means which he has prescribed, we have the great encouragement of knowing that it is by these very means that he has determined to accomplish his great work. Even those who accept the scripture statements that God worketh all things after the counsel of his will and similar declarations to the effect that God's providential control extends to all the events of their lives know that this does not interfere in the slightest with their freedom. To those who make this objection and allow their belief in the divine sovereignty to determine their conduct in temporal affairs, to the decline food when hungry or medicine when sick because God has appointed the time and manner of their death, do they neglect the recognized means of acquiring wealth and distinction because God gives riches and honor to whom he pleases? When in matters outside of religion one recognizes God's sovereignty, yet works in the exercise of conscious freedom, is it not sinful and foolish to offer as an excuse for neglecting his spiritual and eternal welfare the contention that he is not free and responsible? Does not his conscience testify that the only reason why he is not a follower of Jesus Christ is that he has never been willing to follow him? Suppose that when the palsied man was brought to Jesus and heard the words, Rise and walk, he had merely replied, I cannot, I am palsied. Had he done so, he would have died a paralytic. But realizing his own helplessness and trusting the one who gave the command, he obeyed and was made whole. It is the same Almighty Savior who calls on sinners dead in sin to come to him, and we may be sure that the one who comes will not find his efforts vain. The fact is that unless we regard God as the sovereign disposer of all events, who in the midst of certainty has ordained human liberty, we have but little encouragement to work. If we believe that our success in our destiny was primarily dependent on the pleasure of weak and sinful creatures, we would have but little incentive to exertion. On his knees the Arminian forgets those logical puzzles which have distorted predestination to his mind, and at once thankfully acknowledges his conversion to be due to that prevention grace of God, without which no mere will or works of his own would ever have made him a new creature. He prays for that outpouring of God's Spirit to restrain, convince, and renew, and sanctify men, for that divine direction of human events and the overturning of the counsels and frustrating of the plans of wicked men, he gives to the Lord glory and honor for what is actually done in this regard, which implies that God reigns, that he is the sovereign disposer of all events, and that all good and all thwarting of evil are due to him, while all evil is itself due to the creature. He recognizes the completeness of the divine foreknowledge as bound up inseparably with the wisdom of his eternal purpose. His prayers for assurance of hope or his present fruition of it presupposes the faith that God can and will keep his feet from falling and heaven from revolt 
and that his purpose forms such an infallible connection between present grace and eternal glory that nothing shall be able to separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Since the future events are hidden and unknown to us, we should be as industrious in our work and as earnest in the performance of our duty as if nothing had been decreed concerning it. It has often been said that we should pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on ourselves. Luther's observation here was, we are commanded to work the more for this very reason, because all things future are to us uncertain, as saith Ecclesiastes, In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand, for thou knowest not which shall prosper, whether this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 6. All things future, I say, are to us uncertain in knowledge, but necessary in event. The necessity strikes into us fear of God that we presume not, or become secure, while the uncertainty works in us a trusting that we sink not into despair. The farmer who, after hearing a sermon on God's decrees, took the breakneck road instead of the safe one to his home and broke his wagon in consequence, concluded before the end of the journey that he at any rate had been predestined to be a fool and that he had made his calling and election sure. On one occasion after Dr. Charles Hodge had finished a theological lecture, he was approached by a lady who said to him, So you believe, Dr. Hodge, that what is to be will be? Why, yes, lady, I do, he replied. Would you have me to believe that what is to be won't be? And we are further reminded at this point of one in Scotland accused and convicted of murder who said to the judge, I was predestinated from all eternity to do it. To whom the judge replied, So be it. And then I was predestinated from all eternity to order you to be hanged by the neck, which I now do. Some may be inclined to say, If nothing but the creative power of God can enable us to repent and believe, then all we can do is to wait passively until that power is exerted. Or it may be asked, if we cannot effect our salvation, why work for it? In every line of human endeavor, however, we find that the result is dependent on the cooperation of causes over which we have no control. We are simply to make use of the appropriate means and to trust to the cooperation of the other agencies. We do have the express promise of God that those who seek him shall find, and that those who ask shall receive, and that those who knock it shall be opened. This is more than is given to men of the world to stimulate them in their search for wealth, knowledge, or position, and more than this cannot rationally be demanded. He who reads and meditates upon the word of God is ordinarily regenerated by the Holy Spirit perhaps in the very act of reading. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all them that heard the word. Acts 10, verse 44. Shakespeare makes one of his characters say, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. Julius Caesar, 1, verse 2. The sinner's inability to save himself, therefore, should not make him less diligent in seeking his salvation in the way which God has appointed. Some leper, when Christ was on earth, might have reasoned that since 
he could not cure himself, he must simply wait for Christ to come and heal him. The natural effect, however, of the conviction of utter helplessness is to impel the person to make diligent application at the source from whence alone help can come. Man is a fallen, ruined, and helpless creature, and until he knows it, he is living without hope and without God in the world. 2. Practical Results The genuine tendency of these truths is to make men indolent and careless, but to energize and stimulate them to redoubled efforts. Heroes and conquerors such as Caesar and Napoleon have often been possessed with a sense of destiny which they were to fulfill. This sense steals the nerve, redoubles the courage, and fixes in one an indomitable purpose to carry his work through to a successful finish. Large and difficult objects can only be achieved by men who have confidence in themselves and who will not allow obstacles to discourage them. This idea of destiny once embraced, says Mosley, as it is the natural effect of the sense of power, so in its turn adds greatly to it. The person, as soon as he regards himself as predestined to achieve some great object, acts with so much greater force and constancy for the attainment of it, he is not divided by doubts or weakened by scruples or fears. He believes fully that he shall succeed and that belief is the greatest assistance to success. The idea of a destiny in a considerable degree fulfills itself. It must be observed that this is true of moral and spiritual as well as of the natural man and applies to religious aims and purposes as well as to those connected with human glory. E.W. Smith, in his valuable little book, The Creed of Presbyterians, writes as follows, The most comforting and ennobling is also the most energizing of faith. That its grim caricature, fatalism, has developed in human hearts an energy at once sublime and appalling is one of the commonplaces of history. The early and the overwhelming onrush of Mohammedanism, which swept the East and all but overthrew the West, was due to its devotees' conviction that in their conquest they were but executing the decrees of Allah. Attila the Hun was upborne in his terrible and destructive course by his belief that he was the appointed scourge of God. The energy and audacity which enabled Napoleon to attempt and achieve apparent impossibilities was nourished by the secret conviction that he was the man of destiny. Fatalism has begun the race of titans. Their energy has been superhuman because they believe themselves the instruments of a superhuman power. If the grim caricature of this doctrine has breathed such energy, the doctrine itself must inspire a yet loftier for all that is energizing in it remains with added force, when for a blind fate, or even a fatalistic deity, we substitute a wise decreeing God. Let me but feel that in every commanded duty, in every needed reform, I am but working out an eternal purpose of Jehovah. Let me but hear behind me in every battle for the right, the tramp of the infinite reserves, and I am lifted above the fear of man, or the possibility of final failure. In an English newspaper, the Daily Express of April 18, 1929, we read the following concerning Earl Haig, 
who was commander-in-chief of the British armies in the First World War, and who was a Scotsman and a Calvinistic Presbyterian. Most remarkable as regards Haig's own personality is the disclosure that this reserved, cold, formal man had a profound faith, and in the greatest crisis of the war believed implicitly that help would come from above, and that he regarded himself as the chosen of the Lord, the Cromwell who alone could smite the foe. He was genuinely convinced that the position to which he had now been called was one which he and he alone in the British Army could fill. It was not conceit. There was no man who was less inclined to overestimate his own value or capacity. It was opinion based upon the discernment of all the factors. He came to regard himself with almost Calvinistic faith as the predestinated instrument of providence for the achievement of victory for the British armies. His abundant self-reliance was reinforced by this conception of himself as the child of destiny. The genuine tendency of these truths, then, as stated before, is not to make men indolent and careless, nor to allow them to sleep on the lap of presumption and carnal security, but to energize and to inspire confidence. Both reason and experience teach us that the greater one's hope of success, the stronger becomes the motive to exertion. The person who is sure of success in the use of appropriate means has the strongest incentives to work, while on the other hand, where there is but little hope, there will be but little disposition for one to exert himself, and where there is no hope, there will be no exertion. The Christian then who has before him the definite commands of God and the promise that the work of those who obediently and reverently avail themselves of the appointed means shall be blessed has the highest possible motives for exertion. Furthermore, he is elevated and inspired by the firm conviction that he himself is marked out for a heavenly crown. Whoever stated the doctrine of election more plainly or in more forcible language than did the Apostle Paul, and yet, who was ever more zealous and more untiring in his labors than Paul? His theory made him a missionary and impelled him to set forth Christianity as final and triumphant. How cheering it must have been for him in Corinth to hear the words, Be not afraid, but speak and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to harm thee, for I have much people in the city. Acts 18 verse 10 what greater incentive to action could have been given him than this, that his preaching was the divinely appointed means for the conversion of many of those people? Notice, God did not tell him how many people he had in that city, nor who the individuals were. The minister of the gospel can go forward confident of success, knowing that through this appointed means God has determined to save a vast number of human family in every age. In fact, one of the strongest pleas for missions is that evangelism is the will of God for the whole world, and only when one acknowledges the sovereignty of God in every realm of life can he have the deepest passion for the divine glory. The experience of the church in all ages has been that this doctrine has led men not to neglect, nor to stolid unconcern, nor to rebellious opposition to God, but to submission and to a sure trust in divine power. 
The promise given to Jacob that his posterity was to be a great people did not in the least prevent him from using every available means for protection when it looked as though Esau might kill him and his family. When Daniel understood from the prophecies of Jeremiah that the time for the restoration of Israel was at hand, he set himself earnestly to pray for it. Daniel 9 verses 2 and 3 Immediately after it had been revealed to David that God would establish his house, he prayed earnestly for that very thing. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 27 to 29 Although Christ knew what had been appointed for his people, he prayed earnestly for their preservation. John chapter 17 And although Paul had been told that he was to go to Rome and bear witness there, it did not in the least cause him to be careless of his life. He took every precaution to protect himself against unfair trial by the Jerusalem mob and against an unwise voyage. Acts 23 verse 11, chapter 25 verse 10 and 11, and chapter 27 verses 9 and 10. The decree of God was that all those on board the ship should be saved, but that decree took in the free and courageous and skillful activity of the seamen. Their freedom and responsibility were not in the least diminished. The practical effect of this doctrine, then, has been to lead men to frequent and fervent prayer, knowing that their times are in God's hands and that every event of their lives is of His disposing. Furthermore, it may be said that so long as the sinner remains ignorant of his lost and helpless condition, he remains negligent. Probably there is not a careless sinner in the world who does not believe in his perfect ability to turn God at any time he pleases, and because of this belief he puts off repentance, fully intending to come at some more convenient time. Just in proportion as his belief in his own ability increases, his carelessness increases, and he is allowed to sleep on the awful brink of eternal ruin. Only when he is brought to feel his entire helplessness and dependence upon sovereign grace does he seek help where alone it is to be found. Chapter 19 That it represents God as a respecter of persons or as unjustly partial. 1. Difficulties faced by all systems. 2. God is no respecter of persons. 3. God plainly does not treat all people alike. He gives to some what he withholds from others. 4. God's partiality is partly explained by the fact that he is sovereign and that his gifts are of grace. 1. Difficulties faced by all systems. If all men are dead in sin and destitute of the power to restore themselves to spiritual life, why is it asked, does God exercise his almighty power to regenerate some, while he leaves others to perish? Justice, it is said, demands that all should have an equal opportunity, that all should have, either by nature or by grace, power to secure their own salvation. It is to be remembered, however, that objections such as these do not bear exclusively against the Calvinistic system. They are urged by atheists against theism. It is argued, if God is infinite in power and holiness, why does he allow so much sin and misery to exist in the world? And why are the wicked often allowed to prosper through long periods of time, while the righteous often must endure poverty and suffering? 
It is plain enough that the anti-Calvinistic systems can offer no real solutions for these difficulties. Admitting that regeneration is the sinner's own act and that every man has sufficient ability and knowledge to secure his own salvation, it remains true that in the present state of the world only comparatively few are saved and that God does not interpose to prevent the majority of adult men from perishing in their sins. Calvinists do not deny that these difficulties exist. They only maintain that such problems are not peculiar to their system and that they rest content with the partial solution of them which is given in the scriptures. The Bible teaches that man was created holy, that he deliberately disobeyed the divine law and fell into sin, that as a result of that fall Adam's posterity came into the world in a state of spiritual death, that God never pushes them into further sin but that, on the contrary, he exerts influences which should induce rational creatures to repent and seek his sanctifying grace, that all who sincerely repent and seek this grace are saved, and that by the exercise of his mighty power, vast multitudes which otherwise would have continued in their sin are brought to salvation. 2. God is no respecter of persons. A respecter of persons is one who, acting as judge, does not treat those who come before him according to their character, but who withholds from some what is justly theirs and gives to others what is not justly theirs. One who is governed by prejudice and sinister motives rather than by justice and law. The scriptures deny that God is a respecter of persons in this sense, and if the doctrine of predestination represented God as doing these things, we admit that it would charge him with injustice. In the scriptures God is said to be no respecter of persons, for he does not choose one and reject another because of outward circumstances such as race, nationality, wealth, power, nobility, etc. Peter says that God is no respecter of persons because he makes no distinction between Jews and Gentiles. His conclusion after being divinely sent to preach to the Roman centurion Cornelius was, of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him. Acts 10, verse 35. Throughout their entire past history, the Jews had believed that they as a people were exclusive objects of God's favor. A careful reading of Acts 10, verse 1, and chapter 11, verse 18, will show what a revolutionary idea it was that the gospel should be preached to the Gentiles also. Paul likewise says, Glory and honor and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no respect of persons with God. Romans chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. And again, there can be neither Jew nor Greek, there can be neither bond nor free, there can be no male and female, for they all are one man in Christ Jesus. Then he adds that it is not those who are Jews externally, but those who are Christ that are in the highest sense Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise, Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. In Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 9, the slaves and the masters are commanded to treat each other justly, for God, who is the master of both, is no respecter of persons. And likewise, in Colossians 3, verse 25, the relations between fathers and children and between wives and husbands are included. 
James says that God is no respecter of persons because he makes no distinction between the rich and the poor, nor between those who wear fine clothing and those who are plainly dressed. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The term person in these verses signifies not the inner man or the soul, but the outward appearance, which often carries so much influence with us. Hence, when the scriptures say that God is no respecter of persons, they cannot mean that he treats all people alike, but that the reason for his saving one and rejecting another is not that one is a Jew and the other a Gentile, or that one is rich and the other poor, etc. 3. God plainly does not treat all people alike. He gives to some what he withholds from others. It is a fact that in his providential government of the world, God does not confer the same or equal favors upon all people. The iniquity is too glaring to be denied. The scriptures tell us, and the experiences of everyday life show us, that there is a greatest variety in the distribution of these, and justly so, for all of these are of grace and not of debt. The Calvinist here falls back upon the experienced reality of facts. It is true, and no argument can disprove it, that men in this world find themselves unequally favored, both in inward disposition and outward circumstances. One child is born of health, honor, wealth, of eminently good and wise parents who train him up from infancy in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and who afford him every opportunity of being taught the truth as it is in the scriptures. Another is born to disease, shame, poverty, of dissipated and depraved parents who reject and ridicule and despise Christianity and who take care to prevent their child from coming under the influences of the gospel. Some are born with susceptible hearts and consciences which make their lives of innocence and purity natural for them. Others are born with violent passions or even with distinct tendencies to evil which seemingly are inherited and unconquerable. Some are happy, others are miserable. Some are born in Christian and civilized lands where they are carefully educated and watched over. Others are born in complete heathen darkness. As a general rule, the child that is surrounded with the proper Christian influences becomes a devout Christian and lives a life of great service, while the other, whose character is formed under the influence of corrupt teaching and example, lives in wickedness and dies impenitent. The one is saved and the other is lost. And will anyone deny that the influences favorable to salvation, which are brought to bear upon some individuals, are far more favorable than those brought to bear upon others? Will it not be admitted by every candid individual that if the persons had changed places, they probably would have changed characters also? That if the son of the godly parents had been the son of infidels, and had lived under the same corrupting influences, he would in all probability have died in his sins. In his mysterious providence, God has placed persons under widely different influences, and the results are widely different. He of course foresaw these different results before the persons were born. These are facts which no one can deny or explain away. And if we are to believe that the world is governed by a personal and intelligent being, we must also believe that these inequalities have not risen by chance or accident, but through purpose and design, and that the lot of every individual has been determined by the sovereign good pleasure of God. 
Even Arminians, says N. L. Rice, are obliged to acknowledge that God does make great differences in the treatment of human families, not only in the distribution of temporal blessings, but of spiritual gifts also, a difference which compels them, if they would be consistent, to hold the doctrine of election. If the sending of the gospel to a people with the divine influence accompanying it does not amount to a personal election, most assuredly with a withholding of it from a people amounts generally to reprobation. Calvinists merely assume that in the dispensation of his grace God acts precisely as he does in giving other favors. If it were unjust in principle for God to be partial in the distribution of spiritual goods, it would be no less unjust for him to be partial in the distribution of temporal goods. But if as a matter of fact we find that in the exercise of his absolute sovereignty he makes the greatest possible distinctions among men from birth, and that he does so irrespective of any personal merits, both in the allotments of temporal goods and of the essential means to salvation. Hence the statement that the Holy Spirit divideth to each one severally as he will, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. And nowhere in Scripture is it said that God is impartial in the communication of His grace. In regard to His dealings with nations, we find that God has favored some much more highly than others, namely Israel in ancient times, and Europe and America in modern times, while Africa and the Orient have lain in darkness and under the curse of false religions, and this is a fact which all must admit. Although the Jews were a small and disobedient people, God conferred favors on them which he did not give to the other nations of the world. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Amos 3, verse 2. He hath not dealt so with any nation, and so far his ordinances they have not known them. Psalm 147, verse 20. And again, what advantage hath the Jew or what is the advantage of circumcision? Much every way. First of all, that they are entrusted with the oracles of God. Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. These favors did not come because of any merits in the Jews themselves, for they were repeatedly reproached for being a stiff-necked and rebellious people. In Matthew 11, verse 25, we read of a prayer in which Jesus said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and understanding, and didst reveal them unto babes. Yea, Father, for so it was well pleasing in thy sight. In those words he thanked the Father for doing what very thing the Armenians exclaim against as unjust in censure as partial. If it be asked, why does God not bestow the same equal blessing upon all people, we can only answer that has not been fully revealed we see that in actual life he does not treat all alike. For wise reasons known to himself, he has given to some blessings to which they had no claim, thus making them great debtors to his grace, and has withheld from others gifts which he was under no obligation to bestow. There is, in fact, no single member of this fallen race who is not treated by his Maker better than he deserves. And since grace is favor shown to the undeserving, God has the sovereign right to bestow more grace upon one subject than upon another. The bestowment of common grace upon the non-elect, says W. G. T. Shedd, shall
shows that non-election does not exclude from the kingdom of heaven by divine efficacy, because common grace is not only an invitation to believe and repent, but an actual help toward it, and a help that is nullified solely by the resistance of the non-elect, and not by anything in the nature of common grace, or by any preventive action of God. The fault or the failure of common grace to save the sinner is chargeable to the sinner alone, and he has no right to plead a fault of his own as the reason why he is entitled to special grace. If it be objected that God must give every man an opportunity to be saved, we reply that the outward call does give every man who hears it an opportunity to be saved. The message is, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. This is an opportunity to be saved, and nothing outside the man's own nature prevents his believing. Shedd has expressed this idea very well in the following words. A beggar who contemptuously rejects the five dollars offered by a benevolent man cannot charge stinginess upon him because, after this rejection of the five dollars, he does not give him ten. Any sinner who complains of God's passing him by in the bestowment of regenerating grace after his abuse of common grace virtually says to the High and Holy One who inhabits eternity, Thou hast tried once to convert me from sin, now try again and try harder. A strong argument against the Arminian objection that this doctrine makes God unjustly partial is found in the fact that while God has extended his saving grace toward fallen man, he has made no provision for the redemption of the devil and the fallen angels. If it was consistent with God's infinite goodness and justice to pass by the whole body of fallen angels and to leave them to suffer the consequences of their sin, then certainly it is consistent with his goodness and justice to pass by some of the fallen race of men and to leave them in their sin. When the Arminian admits that Christ died not for the fallen angels or demons, but only for fallen men, he admits a limited atonement, and in principle makes the same kind of distinction as does the Calvinist, who says that Christ died for the elect only. Men with their limited and often mistaken knowledge have no right to censor God's distribution of his grace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.